I've been thinking about images. I'm about to start a new semester of teaching abstract painting, and the complex question of what exactly an image is unlocks a key to the practice. One line of thinking that excited me as a student is that an image starts with its edges, the bounds that separate it from the real world and control the forces that act upon the composition within. It is typical that we think of a rectangle when we think of these edges, with its power resting in the relationship between its height and width. Proportion control is at the foundation of image making. But over the past years, I found it impossible to find a way to convey this to my students. It's like they don't see edges the way I do at all, no matter how I demonstrate it. So it occurs to me that they might not even see images the same way. For me, when I look at my phone, scroll through Instagram or whatever, I'm looking at images, mediated and separate from reality. Fake. But I'm thinking they're not really images anymore, or at least their image-ness is growing very thin. They are portals now to real spaces with real people in them. My students get this. And I understand now that they don't really give a shit about my edges or my systems for proportion. They don't even see the edges. Welcome to Generation Poetry. This is the Generation Poetry Podcast. Hello. Our very first episode. My name is Jeff Tutt. Together with Julie Jensen Bennett and Massey Tedeschi, I am pleased to be welcomed into your head. We are right at the beginning of our journey together. The Generation Poetry Project aims to become a school for and about communication in our times. But what does that mean? What is a school? What we imagine is a space opening up to allow not just a conversation, but of a translation between the new poetics of the young and the prose of everyone else. Our project is research-based, and you'll hear some of that. Where's Massey? But we are also experimenting intellectually, sonically, and learning. Most, most importantly, the Generation Poetry Podcast is about listening, listening to the world around us, listening to wisdom, and for bullshit, especially our own, listening, listening for the resonance of that past and the tones of the future. In that spirit, the Generation Poetry Project will bring you the voices of our advisory board. These accomplished people were the first to hear about our ambitions and their unhesitating enthusiasm and love ensures us that we are certainly on to something here. So please join us. Our first episode uh, will feature the voice of Philip Shepard. Followed by that, you will hear a conversation between Julie and Massey about inaction, the topic of the Generation Poetry Project's newsletter for this week. Please go to generationpoetry.com to learn more. Thank you very much. I love, I love that. 
<laughs> How much does this therapy session cost? I think you just have to let it go. People have got penguin heads or what have you, and, and, but they're totally acting in a natural way as if nothing's odd. And it's very surreal, but at the same time, it creates these realities that appear to be fully formed. They're entirely edited accidental, if, if you know what I mean. And I, I love that. I love that. It's the same with music. It's like taking a line for a walk in music and it constantly sort of turning a little bit to the right you'll eventually get to a point when it gives you goosebumps and that's when you edit the rest of the noise out and you just choose that bit, bit. And I think it's the same with, yeah, with, with verbal generation things. And it's, it's funny, we, you know, we're always surprised and delighted when, um, if you like, abstract things. Well, my name is Philip Shepherd, and I'm a composer and a producer. And I'm also CEO of a music technology startup. Yeah, I try and do lots of things because I have a really short attention span. It's a, I've trained as a, as a cellist and have sort of uh, morphed into various other things as, as I go along. Um, well, I think there's two distinct strands that form my interest. One of which is the struggle I have every day as a writer, as a, mu as a music writer, so as a composer and a musician which is that I'm constantly trying to find a way of expressing myself between the words, if that makes sense, and between the notes. And music's always been a very good medium for that. And I find that when I verbally run to a dead end and when I can't actually necessarily formulate, if you like, a way of thinking or conceptualizing something, I tend to go to music or to color or to taste to something else whereby there's not necessarily a fixed framework for how to convey meaning but it's basically when language runs out when interpretation comes in and when self-expression comes into other means that's that's something i'm very interested in because you're always trying to find the next way to explain a concept without using conventional narrative means and then the other reason is i've got four kids <laughs> and i don't understand them i each one of them has got a different way of structuring their interactions with me and then with their peers and these are kids that range from 19 i've got four 19 all the way down to 12 and that's a big even even in that half generation there's a massive difference in the way that they conceptualize both language and interaction and their own sort of social networks and their own position in the world of their own making. So it feels like there's something there when we've been talking that, that it might be a good thing to, for me to tap into to try and understand because I don't want to be cool with my kids, but I would like to understand them. <laughs> The fact that I think we've all grown up, we've all grown up with sort of self-expression being the norm, um, certainly as, as an English person, that's not actually the done thing. But yeah, it's this, this thing of, of actually having to, to, to be uh, consciously expressive and creative and that that's part and parcel of, of one's day-to-day -day, you know, professional existence. And it's almost as if in 
now this era whereby people are creating being being producers not consumers which i think is a really good thing you know we're not necessarily being just taking everything that we're being fed you know the fact that everyone is not watching the same tv channel at the same time the fact that we're not all eating the same food the fact that we can customize you know nothing is necessarily taken off the peg in any way whether it's an idea or whether it's fashion or whether it's a style of living whether it's sexuality everything is actually up for i suppose customization is the wrong word for, for sort of hacking looking at in a completely objective way and saying actually that's not me i'm going to make myself this that's what that's what being an artist is which is why artists have always been the weirdos but now everyone's weird not being not being weird is odd right basically the founding the company came out of a what i perceived as a frustration and a need the frustration for myself was that I, you know i do a lot of walking and and running and i never know what to listen to and you know we are faced with you know a vast plethora of amazing music but it's formulated into albums uh, or singles and and the formats of those are purely determined by technologies that are at least 50 years old in each case you know, the, the fact that we listen to music that's recorded at all is thanks to thomas edison and him being very greedy about wanting you know some money from other people's patents um and then the fact that we listen to albums is the fact that we managed to slow the 78 record down to 33 and a third rpm which meant that a certain number of tracks whether it's 11 or 12 three and a half minute things can fit into one sort of conceptual whole but we're we're sort of post all of that now and really it's only since 1910 that we've really engaged with the idea of recorded music being what music is and i don't think that's what music is at all so prior to that point and the whole history of of any music whether western eastern or you know southern um music's just a social participatory thing it's ephemeral you do it as a group it's not for an audience and then it evaporates and there's something really lovely about that and it also isn't necessarily based around someone being better than somebody else at it it's just you just do it and we we all used to until we were turned into consumers and said well actually here's what you should listen to there you go i mean it's really strange that now you've got things like the bark cello suites are known and you know everyone assumes that they've been the greatest piece of solo instrumental music since you know the 1670s 1680s but actually they were completely unknown until 1930 because they hadn't been recorded they were just sheet music so my, my whole challenge in setting up the company was how can we actually use technology to make technology invisible in the kind of music rep replication bit how can i make someone who's maybe going for a walk or driving to work how can i let them create a soundtrack to their day that actually creates itself in real time so if you're able to carve a line through time and space how to generate real music from that not synthesized music real music from that that actually feels like you are if you like participating in in the movie of your day or it's just doing something that biometrically is matching what's happening to you or helping you alter your mood to get to another point but using the best studios in the world and the best musicians and just 
come up with some kind of a system whereby we can break everything down into these this kind of cellular idea that music can be built on the fly and then make everyone yes a composer or a producer in 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 the doing so now that's not to say i'm not worried about putting myself out of a job it's a bit like saying professional photographers must be terrified of instagram actually <laughs> it's not really what happens with that you know people share a photograph and they don't say oh, i'm sorry i'm not a professional photographer you know and yet with music people are very embarrassed to share a tune or even sing in front of each other because they're not they've not been trained which is crazy it's karaoke is actually japanese for empty orchestra i mean it worries me that we in a in a way the, the problem with music is that once you start recording it and actually notating it you end up actually with a glut of stuff how can you ever engage with all of that in your lifetime and that's becomes quite stressful M mozart would have never expected to have heard his fifth symphony by the time he was writing his 30s it, it wasn't he was writing a new one because you know people heard the other one it was really quite strange that we actually now are quite you know archival and canonical about these i mean thank god because i mean they're amazing pieces of music but he didn't design that music to be anything other than here's an entertainment for you right now and it's only really beethoven when he came along and said oh, actually i'm going to play my first second fifth and ninth symphony and the choral symphony and a piano concerto all in one go purely to make money because he was broke really strange that we re and, and i'd say the same is the is the case for the popular music as well once we start sort of going back and and being maybe overly reverential about it it sort of destroys the point of what it is unless it's unless it's a piece of art which is pretty much everything the beatles ever did is a piece of art but at the same time even they i think were making things that were designed to to pass you know, george harrison that's certainly how he felt and that's one of the reasons i think he engaged with eastern philosophy was these this is you know all this must pass i mean it's one that he sang about it the printing press in a way is is what happened to music at the beginning of the 20th century that that's someone saying right now we fix it we literally fix this type and yet we fight we struggle with the fact that language has always been amorphous and spellings should change and meanings should change and you know get very upset about you know things things being correct and proper because we've sort of put them in aspic and, and solidified them but the weird thing is that poetry i i think poetry is an evolutionary comes from an evolutionary imperative that if you think about it um how could you warn your children and your grandchildren when you're in your cave about the tribe over the hill you you sing it or you recite it beowulf was designed probably to be spoken from memory the quran was designed to be spoken from memory there's still people who will memorize the entire quran you know it's an amazing piece of poetry this stuff is actually there to say if you think about any any fairy tale any, all of them are um warnings of how to stay alive basically this is where we, i did a lot of weirdly enough a lot of research into nursery rhymes when i was writing about brain plasticity and music but every single nursery rhyme you can name and english and american ones are different by the way but all of them are about trying to ascend something trying to climb up trying to get up and then you're going to fall down and that's fine now why is that and even the music does that it repeats and it climbs up and then it falls down 
incy wincy spider as we say <laughs> whether it's the grand old chief of york it's all about going up going up and do you know what you fall down humpty dumpty you get up you fall down because when you learn those three rhymes it's normally they're normally being sung to you when you are learning to toddle that's what it's yeah. about every single song that your mother taught you as it were and hopefully some fathers too are all about hey shit happens get up get back up again that's that's where for me that's where the sort of the, the recitation of poetry comes from it's like um you know don't go and drink from that pond over there because you'll 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 die you know the number of, of sort of almost tribal and prehistoric records that we've got where you can see that a lot of the art is actually either instructions or survival guide you know isn't that what the bible is i mean <laughs> isn't that what the old testament is and it's just then they sort of get attached to you know religious figure who yeah. comes along and goes right that's pretty good as a set of rules like that for me is the reason for poetry and that's why it's liquid and that's why it's a good thing that it's a it is an oral tradition and and it is handed down and it and it's ephemerality it's fine but yeah you get these these moments that then are preserved because they are beautiful shiny objects you know and i'd argue against myself with music that's when you have the perfect recording the perfect piece of music you treasure it because actually what it is it's capturing the goosebumps at that moment you and you arranging your rocks on the beach i'm sure you know andy goldsworthy when he's he's you know putting leaves in the stream somewhere doesn't go home and cry about the fact they won't be there. a lovely photograph that makes a great exhibition but actually i promise you that that the, the the rush you get of interacting with nature and knowing that it's about to be swept away by the tide yeah. is the thing that makes it really beautiful you know but and that's just, i have i have actually been absolutely in that position where i was writing music for a movie probably about my eighth or ninth movie so still quite early on and very much the deadline and as an air studios conducting the orchestra thinking oh this is actually this tune's going all right and a friend of mine was leading the cellos I see him just looking at me while he was playing, and the eyebrow, you know, the left eyebrow kind of went up quizzically. I was mouthing at him, what? <laughs> and we carried on with this piece. And I suddenly realized by page three that I'd written note for note, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It was <laughs> exactly the same. And yes, it was very good because it's by John Williams, and I was delivering this score the next day. <clears throat> I was like, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Let's move on <laughs> to the next cue. And I had to go home and write a completely new piece of music. And the director said, why did you take the music out? And I said, well, I just thought I could write something better than that. I could never tell him that. I'd... <laughs> and, and, you know, it was a complete and absolute steal. It's a fun chat, though. It's a fun chat, though. It's a fun chat, though. <laughs> Hello? Oh, oh, Are you out there? Oh, oh, Are you listening? Oh, this is Generation Poetry. Oh, oh, oh. Hello? So, my name is Julie Jensen Bennett, and... Uh, my name is Marcia Tedeschi. And uh, we are co-directors of the Generation Poetry Project. And every week, we write a newsletter that goes out to our subscribers about a word. It starts with a word that we feel is being redefined in the new language of generation poetry. And we kind of explore how you can look at this word or concept differently and start to start to see a little bit more about what, what's going on in generation poetry. 
And this week, the word that we chose felt so perfect for the times because we're talking about the idea of action and inaction, particularly in political terms. So what what does it mean to take action in the world or to not take action in the world? And we're, we live in the UK. We're in the middle of a very bizarre soap opera um, when it comes to politics, Brexit, populism, movements, voting, democracy. Um, and when I talk to other people about the Generation Poetry Project, uh, particularly, air quotes, older people, the first thing they say to me is like, why aren't the kids doing anything? Why aren't they voting? Why aren't they, you know, like, this is their future. Why aren't they being more active about it? Um, and, uh, and then I have to sort of stop and say, well, (laughs) (laughs) and I know you get this question a lot too, Massey. And how do you, how do you answer it when people? I, I I was actually thinking of it, uh, some time ago and, and for me is what I would call unfair 3.0, not even 2.0 is, uh, is this idea that all of a sudden, uh, we uh, as older generations seem to be uh, not to have many options, you know, not to have many venue to change a system that clearly is not sustainable, you know, it's not sustainable socially, it's not sustainable culturally, and of course in terms of uh, of um, environment, etc. And all of a sudden we are lost for option, a little bit like our Prime Minister Boris Johnson and say, well, well, you you now come in, you, you know, it's a, fundamentally you're going to inherit all this, so why don't you, you know, stand up and do what you need to do and you know why don't you take more action why don't you vote more why but literally not giving any suggestion putting them in the middle of it and then asking them to solve the problem for us that's exactly what i see actually it's very interesting this week because we saw that in parliament but it's a a sort of thread that i feel is a kind of uh, general narrative you know you were we were having this conversation about harry potter and you know all the literature that seemed to suggest you know that is the duty of the younger generation to carry on you know change and revolution and partially true but also i find this is a very crucial moment where actually we also expect them to do that, them to do that in our terms yeah and um they see through the system to an extent that a lot of I think the rest of us aren't willing to accept, right? They've they've always lived in a world where the fact that elections are sort of manipulated and that votes don't count the same and that um you know truth is is manipulated by by people in the system and and so there's a there's a fundamentally different sort of but I think I think for me it's more than uh, than the systems. I think it's actually so more than the processes. I think actually is the literally seeing that your voice is not heard because it's fundamentally trumped by processes. So it's almost like a movement from, you know, if you think of democracy, democracy is a process. It's a process that enables people to have a voice. In the case of the referendum is uh, we have seen it as reversed, right? You know, so now democracy is advocated 
as a way not to give people voice in a situation that clearly is problematic. So I think it's a, almost like an epitome, if you wish. That's why it's so interesting that it's happening this week, because it's almost epitomic in a way of what I think is happening in the young people's minds, which is literally processes are so complex, they are so, they are, and they are failing. So it's about reflecting on the process, not the content. So when I think we turn to them and say, actually, we can't fix it, it we are not talking of the, the content, we are talking of the systems, the processes that we have in place. Thinking from you know the very idea of capitalism to the idea of what sustainability is. So I think what, in my opinion, younger generation is angry about is uh, you are not as older generation challenging the processes and processes uh, i think are challenged in a very different way again you challenge a process through a language you don't challenge a process through a open protest where you throw bombs at people right mm -hmm. you know a process is much finer is much uh, it requires much more finesse i think you know to impose quote unquote or to present the content you know whatever you know politically charged content from abortion to gay right to you know civil right you literally can bomb into <laughs> but when you are thinking well that has not changed stuff that much which i, I really believe that that's what young people they look and they think well it hasn't changed that much so they are now reflecting on the process and the process is language so the process has to be changed much in a much subtler way and the process requires you to resist a lot right so resistance within a process becomes you know the not going voting it doesn't become a protest as well you know we're angry becomes literally a way to say if we don't do it you'll have to find a new process so the the new language that we see in generation poetry is the action it in is. that sense. Yeah. It is, that is the mechanism for changing the but process it's, it's and changing really, the system. It's really so interesting because li language is uh, devalued from reality, right? Language is less, just language. You know, language is not real. You can't touch language. You know, language is just a way to communicate. I send a message to you, more or less like an animal talking to one another. We're trying to get things agreed. So it has that intangibility as opposed to doing, you know, voting and, you know, things that seems very accurate you know, actionable. But the actionable thing, particularly I think this is very true of Western Western civilization in general, has not brought to good a good outcome. Just this obsession in acting and moving and acting and moving without reflecting has not led, I believe, to any sustainable solution. So the only way to flip it is actually not to act anymore. That's why the inaction becomes so interesting, right? You know, I don't act anymore. All this actionability that has been, that is an obsession, is actually a Western obsession, start actually becoming much more sinister, right? It's, it's literally like running toward the precipice without really investigating where I'm going, you know, and how am I going? You know, am I killing myself in the process? And I think there is a flip now. So inaction in that respect become the antidote of disaster. There is so much potential in that lack <laughs> of, uh, in that perplexity that we have when we look at this kid and we think they don't move, they don't do much. There's so much, um, there's so much potential for change. It's very difficult to know what, it will, what will happen once that will have to be actioned. But that's in, in, a, in a funny way, it's almost like an incubation time, I think, for me. What I observe in this generation is they're incubating new processes in their own way, through their own language.
to their own exchange. We are not participating. I don't believe that um, politics and politicians are participating in it at all. They will take over. I still believe, unless there is a massive epidemic or you know something quite big, they will take over. And I'm really curious. I mean, I, I hope I'll live long enough to see what's happening. But I think we are at the place of incubation. I would say this um, um, uh, inaction for me is actually a, a, a synonym of incubation. That's that's really interesting. So essentially, we're saying that inaction is an antidote for disaster. I think that's a great phrase. And also that just surviving, just surviving is victory for lack of a better word it's the only the only victory possible in this scenario i think that it's very interesting because if you think about the baby boomer you know and the this idea the world is your oyster and you know our generation that also has you know again in certain spaces in the world has lived with you know a lot of uh, um a lot of awareness in a way and a lot of opportunity um we assume that action maybe lead to fulfilling the dream but i wonder what is the dream of um, surviving you know what is not just surviving as a function of staying alive but what is the dream of people that want to survive you know what is their longer term vision the the reality of um the dream of survival um, sorry, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just backtracking in my head a little bit about thinking about that phrase. What is the dream of survival? I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what my understanding and a bit where this came from. And is again, a little bit of a research adventure and a slash holiday for me in Bali and going in a bike ride, beautiful bike ride in the middle of the rice uh, field. And it sounds exactly, is exactly as beautiful as it sounds. And I was, uh, I, and we stopped and there was a mother from uh, Seattle with two kids of different age, quite young actually. I think one was 18 and the other 12. And it was really interesting, the typical dynamic of picking up your phone and you know being here and there in the conversation. And then we, they asked me what I was doing and I explained you know, with the obsession for generation poetry. And there was this moment where uh, attention, actually <clears throat> at different stages, but they were getting toward me and the table. And then we got into this conversation about uh, future and goals and uh, and this lady spoke to me, trying to get to get my my buy-in in her protest to her older son, saying, "Well, you're so unfocused. You know, you seem to not have a direction, and I'm really worried for you. And uh, you know, the fact that you don't seem that you don't seem to know exactly what you want to do. You keep saying, I want to see how life plans up for me. And I ask you about the bigger value, and you say, Well, you know, it's all very difficult. And and all of a sudden, I, 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 I see, I see this sort of generational tension, you know, in a very simple way in front of me. And the guy, the, the son responded to us like, well, but if you, if I have a set goal, my life is going to be a failure because, you know, a set goal only de develop failure. There's no flexibility in a set goal. And also, how do I know if the goal is still appropriate for me as I'm changing? He literally said, the person I'm today, very existentialist, the person that I'm today, I'm not, is not the person that's going to be tomorrow. So how do I set a goal today that I'm going to pursue tomorrow? How's that going to help me and make me happy, well-adjusted, and live in a world that I want to live in? And the mother was baffled. She didn't have an answer. And the kid, the younger kid, kind of in, 
occasionally looked in and out. It was really quite funny and cute. And uh, um, and I actually tried to explain, and I said, well, maybe there is a different way to look at uh, at uh, success. You know, maybe success is not goal-oriented, but success maybe is being in touch with one own fragment and differences, and in a way, almost truly bottom-up, seeing a little bit how life plans. And the mother, I mean, I probably said this slightly more convincingly than now, but the mother all of a sudden had a bit of a click, and she said, are you telling me that their system of uh, of uh, addressing life could be could make them more happy than they made me and I was like well yes in a way yes because I think and it was really interesting to see how for me for the first time she kind of realized that this guy that she probably saw with the I think she was very worried that he will not have a future. I think that was her worry. And to kind of imagine that maybe he will have a future because he's not aiming for one, maybe that's actually changed a little bit her mind. And um, yeah, and, and I thought it was really quite an interesting, uh, uh, an, an interesting way for me to see, but it was very simple, you know, it's, it's not, you know, it's not rocket science. It was just a, a very simple interaction between two generations that simply seemed to start from different assumption. Uh, one assumption that actually success is planning and the other one that success is uh, not planning. That one success is achieving, the other one success is feeling. That's how it felt for me a little bit. As, you, as you're talking, it, it reminded me of the the story from a research that I was thinking of when I was working on the newsletter and um, actually started to try and write an essay about afterwards but didn't get very far, which was when we were in Romania. And I I had this sudden feeling of being um, like on Mount St. Helens in the US where there was, you know, a huge volcanic explosion and how... You, you, in the midst of all this devastation, you saw the first bits of life popping through the rocks. And in Romania, there was this culture, this society that's lived through far worse than we're imagining at, at this point in time and what we're looking at in these scenarios that seem so apocalyptic. And yet they survived. Yet life, life survived. The grass poked through the sidewalk. The hope remained. Life was still there. And yeah, the, that um, yeah, sometimes enduring, resisting, surviving, is is is. Yeah, I think I think uh, I think there are uh, there are two. I think there are two points. I think one is the point of you know the point you're making is about survival, and I think it's uh, to to me what I read in what you say is uh, survival in itself has its own. Um, um, magic and regulation. It's quite mysterious. I think survival is very mysterious. He has that mysterious quality. So when you talk of Romania and being there with you in that, you have this uh, genuine post-apocalyptic and slightly, uh, it's it's very epic, very epic feel. And that's, I think, for me, is uh, definitely one of the things that I see in uh, this generation, is that almost cultivating the mystery of survival and that's I find really interesting. And I think the other one is actually for me the Bali experience, which is not about surviving, but about what success means. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a little bit for me the balance, the balance, the tension that this generation, as all generation, is uh, is is negotiating, surviving versus thriving. But what I see is that both are changing in the paradigm. 
you know, normally one tend to stay stable, you know, so survival is given, then I can explore who I am, or, you know, I can explore who I am because, you know, there's a, well, this doesn't make any sense. We chopped this, but... I think we've, well, I think we've, we've put, we've put plenty of material down okay. for, for, for Not Jeff. Right, no. Jeff, no, no, it's good. It's okay. Yeah. Um, it, any, any kind of thoughts or phrases or, or anecdotes that, that you want to mention before? Um, um yeah, probably I think the disdain for the word action that I personally have. Uh, you know, having worked in, um, you know, in consulting and business most of my life is the most uh, em the emptiest word that I I hear constantly in uh, business life. And that in itself for me is really curious because I, I think culture of company, which is still very much affected by this uh, belief in actionability versus reflection of processes it's so misaligned with the language of generation poetry and that in itself for me is actually quite uh, interesting from a consulting point of view for me as a consultant as i as i'm two people one listening to generation poetry and the language and one listening at my client with the language i can't imagine how they're gonna communicate frankly i find that quite uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by it because literally it's uh, like talking uh, more than two different languages. It's the set of value underpinning. It's uh, so different that I, every time in a business meeting, I think uh, I have absolutely no idea who you are, business people, referring to when you talk. With, uh, to, and to me, this uh, absolute obsession is almost like a modernist obsession for uh, things that need to happen. No reflection, and I say again this this very um, uh, very interesting quote for uh, from one of our respondents saying, "You have to you have to think before you give people things. You need to think about the implication and the ethics." To me, that phrase uh, is actually still one of the best phrases to also explain this issue of action and inaction. Is you need to reflect. Is the reflection that actually is so important, and I think. Uh, I don't see that in, uh, in uh, businesses. I see a lot of, uh, quote-unquote, green or ethical washing, you know, so now we are woke and we need to say, that's not, that, again, that is an action, is an action. We need to speak a different language. No, no, you need to understand a different language, not to speak it. First is understanding, not producing. Don't worry about producing new language. Just try to understand the one that is forging right now. I know it's not easy. I know it requires to read. It requires to ponder. It requires to sit. It requires inaction. And that's not what businesses want. And that's not what our 
<clears throat> capitalist system want either. We need to be on the move. New product need to be produced. So I think businesses goes into, oh, so how do we tap into more ethical and how we do? And again, that is to me the same analogy as the, the Brexit deal. You know, now, you know, now we are in this, you know, how do we, but, but, but you need to step back. You need to reflect on it more. And, uh, but that's not, I think we are, get all very anxious when we are requested to reflect. And this generation is what is capable of doing. If you want to read more about inaction and action and you didn't catch the first issue of our newsletter, um, you can just drop a line to us at the Generation Poetry Project and we will add you to the mailing list but also send you the back issue so you can um, see a little bit more about action and inaction in action. <laughs> Oh, I kind of feel like I'm standing up at the end of church making announcements before the coffee hour, but here we go. Okay. The Generation Poetry Project has two events coming up in September and October. The first is our Introducing Generation Poetry online seminar, or GenPo 101, as I like to call it. This is free. It's 50 minutes. It covers the basics of what we're talking about when we talk about Generation Poetry, uh, particularly why we're stuck with the word poetry, no matter how confusing, unfamiliar, unsubstantial this word sounds. So our first uh, version of this seminar is on September 17th. You can register via a link on our website. So just go to www.generationpoetry.com and click on the happenings link. Also on October 8th, we are moderating a discussion on what generation poetry will allow brands to do and be. Kind of looking at how the whole entire contract of consumer culture is up for grabs. We're going to be at the Arboretum in central London, which is a brand new members club. We're starting at 6.30 p.m. The panel, I think this is going to be really electric. It's definitely not the voices you're used to hearing in this discussion. Uh, and again, you can use the happenings link on our website to get your ticket. It's quite a small event, keeping it intimate. So I would get in there now and grab one if you want to come. Finally, the Generation Poetry Project, well, we're self-funded. Uh, so to keep doing this research, to keep putting on events and courses, to keep giving the Voices of Generation Poetry a platform, we're going to need sponsors. Uh, if you're part of a business that's trying to figure out how to speak effectively with young people, we offer a number of different ways that you can engage with us to help you out. This includes um, actually the opportunity to come out with us on field research as, as part of the project. It's kind of an immersive academy of generation poetry. Essentially, we can talk about this stuff all day long and try and explain it to you. But once you see it with your own eyes and start to make sense of things differently... You can't unsee it. It's definitely an amazing experience. You can also help help us in all the usual ways. So like, share, subscribe to this podcast. Please sign up to our newsletter every week. It gives you really actually quite useful things on what's going on in the world. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And yeah, join us in the poetics of positive performance in the epic of the Panopticon. Thank you.